Okay, tonight the, um, we said we'd speak about the question, <coughs> the problem of uh, risky, of risks, risks in medicine. The last few weeks we've been speaking about medical ethical or medical halakhic subjects. And tonight <coughs> the idea is to look at the subject <coughs> of, um, of risk and how we approach that, wh- how much risk is acceptable under various circumstances, how much risk is one obliged to expose oneself to in order to help somebody who is ill or in broader context. <coughs> we'll try to look at some of these laws and I'll try to bring out for you the application of the subject <coughs> beyond medicine. I'm aware that most of you are not, uh, not doctors. How many people here are doctors or medically involved? <coughs> Okay, but let's try to look at the subject a bit more broadly and see if we can identify um, the, its applications and ramifications well beyond the specific medical field. There's a lot of issues here that are far broader than specifically medical. <coughs> so let's try to take a look at that. <coughs> what, what I'd like to do with your permission is to look at a specific, uh, specific issue in medicine and use that as a framework use that perhaps as a framework for building our discussion of the the question of risks and dangers and it will give us a chance to look at at many other things as well. And the example I'm thinking of is the problem of cosmetic surgery. Cosmetic surgery, right? Somebody who is wanting a procedure that is a surgical procedure for aesthetic reasons, right? That is obviously an issue where risk needs to be discussed. Is it permissible to expose oneself to risk for the benefit of looking different and what are the issues that, that surround it. So let's look at the question of cosmetic surgery from a broad perspective and then we'll try to focus more narrowly on the question of the risks that are involved. Hold your questions, <coughs> give me a chance to build an approach to the subject and then if there's time at the end I'll try to answer <coughs> questions if I'm, if I'm able to. <coughs> The question of cosmetic surgery, first of all, let's just, a word of background. We're not talking about what is commonly known as plastic surgery. Plastic surgery in general, as you're probably aware, has a lot of aspects that are not cosmetic. A lot of things plastic surgeons do that are done for function or even perhaps sometimes life-saving, covering burns with grafts and things like that. <coughs> We're talking this evening about things that we would call aesthetic, right? A person who, not a person who, not, not, not a plastic procedure in general, but somebody who wants a feature of their body changed because they are not satisfied with the way they look. Right? That is what we are specifically dealing with this evening. Somebody who wants the shape of their nose changed, <coughs> or their ears you know, changed, or they want the general bumps and dents reorganized or um, switched, more or less. That, that, that sort of thing. Um, so they look, the image will be different than it was before. This is an area that <coughs> a lot, a lot, obviously, discussion here. Before we get to the medical, to the Torah area, <coughs> there's a lot that we have to be clear about medically. <coughs> Just want to emphasize that we're talking this evening about cosmetic procedures that make sense medically. Okay, a lot of a lot of plastic surgeons will tell you that one of the one of the nightmares <coughs> they have is when somebody comes to plastic surgery, cosmetic surgery, where the surgeon gets involved, and it turns out that the real issue is not a cosmetic issue. Somebody wants to look different, and the real problem is a problem of a relationship or a self-image problem. There's a deeper issue here, and surgery is really not going to be the answer. People like that don't do well. 
people like that generally, <coughs> the rule is they generally don't do well with the surgery. So let's assume here that we're talking about a, an example where the surgery is correctly indicated, there's a genuine reason here, and that has to, obviously that has to be clear. Some people are so misled about some of these things. I, I remember my father who was a, <coughs> who was a medical specialist told me that when he trained in medicine, happened to train in his, uh, he came from South Africa and he studied medicine here at Guy's Hospital, he told me that once he was, once, one evening when he was um, in doing a, a casualty emergency room duty here, a fellow walked in who had ears like this, and he asked my father if he could have an operation to have his ears pinned back. And so my father asked him why he wanted his ears pinned back, and he said because he didn't want his children to be born with ears. <laughs> You know, one has to be careful about the, you know, what the reason for the surgery is and that it's, you know, that it's correctly done. But assuming, assuming that that has been, that homework has been done, and we're talking about a genuine need for surgery where there's a real issue, then what is the Torah approach to that? I just like to point out that when we talk about an objective issue, sometimes we have criteria that would generally be accepted to be subjective, and they can be, in some circumstances, objective. I'll give an example. Let's say uh, you have a married couple. Just to give an example that has been raised halakhically. <coughs> Let's say you have a married couple where, for argument's sake, the woman has some feature or blemish or perhaps some, some issue or abnormality that her, fi- her husband finds um, offensive. Right? Now assume, let's assume that this is something that's obstructing their relationship and assume it is something that is not an objective problem. By which I mean, assume you did a survey of all men on earth and all men on earth would agree that this is not a problem. In fact, most of them would find it attractive. <coughs> but this husband has a problem and he can't be close to his wife because of this issue. That would be an example of something that is not a... That is something that is not an objective problem because most people would agree that it's not a problem. But in this case, it's a real problem. And if it's a real problem in this case, and she's willing to undergo, wants to undergo surgery, and it is likely to heal the problem, our authorities have allowed surgery in such circumstances. <coughs> so, that's, a, that's an interesting example of something that wouldn't be generally considered objective, but it's real in these circumstances that would justify <coughs> a, a serious consideration of surgery. <coughs> so, let's look at the problem as broadly as we can, and then we'll focus down. When you're talking about an aesthetic procedure, something that someone wants to have because they want to look different, either because they're not satisfied with the way they look, or because they have an objective problem like a scar, or a, um, a particular blemish, or perhaps they were injured, or they had a growth and it was removed, or, or dealt with surgically, and it's left to some disfigurement, whatever the reason is, how do we understand, <coughs> what, is the, what is the halakhic approach to this? I think that generally speaking there are five issues that have to be dealt with in cosmetic surgery. I may be wrong, there may be more. But to the best of my knowledge, there are five issues that have to be covered, five areas that need to be dealt with halakhically before we can uh, talk about surgery. <coughs> the five areas, as far as I'm aware, are as follows. First of all, I'll try to run through them more or less briefly, and then we'll focus down perhaps with more, more detail on the issue of risks. The first issue is probably whether in Judaism it is permissible to change something natural in the first place. What's our philosophical approach to changing something that's natural? After all, you were born with a nose that looks the way it looks, or ears that look the way they look. 
are you allowed to change that which is a natural, divinely given <coughs> attribute? You realize that this question is much broader than the human body. Can you change natural features of the geographical landscape? <coughs> Can you genetically <coughs> modify crops or fruits, for that matter? Can you tamper with the natural? Right? That's an interesting question. This has seriously been debated, and it has. there are some issues here, but generally speaking, it's not a Jewish problem. And the reason is that, if anything, our view is that the world is given to us to manipulate and change. Of course, we're talking about doing it responsibly, where there's no damage. We're not talking about doing things that are genetic engineering, where there is a real fear that some harm may result, tampering with viruses or bacteria or, or species of plants or animals, <coughs> where danger may result. That, that becomes a practical question of what the genuine dangers are. But the general principle of changing the landscape, or changing <coughs> the biological landscape, if you like, is not generally a Jewish concern. We understand that the Torah gives us, Hashem gave us the world in order to use wisely for human benefit, and therefore there's no general problem of changing a natural feature. Okay, so far so good? <coughs> there are some specific problems. You're not allowed to graft fruits, for example, right? Interbreeding, grafting fruit. You have to combine a, uh, a peach and a plum, for example, right? You're not allowed to do that. Once it's been done, you can eat such fruit but you're not allowed to do such grafting. And there are some very specific prohibitions of interbreeding in animals and interbreeding in plant species, planting plants too close together of different species. <coughs> there are all sorts of specific prohibitions like that in the Torah. But the general idea of changing a natural feature, we don't really have to deal with as a serious prohibition over here. The second issue is the problem of wounding. Right? When you perform surgery, you are wounding. You, you are, you're cutting. You're cutting the body. <clears throat> Even very fine surgery, you know, some facial procedures are so fine, some plastic surgery, cosmetic surgery is so fine that immediately after surgery you cannot see the cuts. They are so skillfully placed in the edge of an eyelid or in a natural skin crease, and the sutures that are used are finer than a human hair. Extremely small, but nevertheless there is cutting, there is cutting the body. Some surgical procedures are done underneath the skin, <clears throat> but even there an instrument is inserted underneath the skin, whether it's to remove fat or to whatever it is, the instrument is there's a cut that's required in order to insert the instrument, and there is surgical trauma that takes place underneath the skin. So no matter how fine you, your surgical uh, you know, cuts may be, you're talking about an injury to the body, and there's a Torah prohibition of injuring the body. You may not have that done to yourself, and you may not injure someone else. Okay? It's a direct Torah prohibition, a biblical prohibition. You're not allowed to cause injury. Technically, the kind of injury we're talking about <coughs> is drawing blood. Obviously, you're not allowed to strike someone. You're not you, you may not strike someone even if you don't draw blood. But the technical the infraction we're talking about here is where you draw blood. For example, in, in, in striking a parent, which is a Torah, actually a capital Torah prohibition, in striking a parent that is actionable in Jewish law if you draw blood. That means if there's bruising <coughs> or bleeding. <coughs> you're not allowed to, you may not do that. Now, surgery involves such an issue. What is our attitude to that? Now, normally, I've chosen cosmetic surgery because it brings out this point very well. Normally, we are doing surgery where, if, for example, surgery is being performed because a person's life is in danger. Well, if someone's life is in danger, then we are allowed to break all the laws of the Torah, including injuring someone, because we are trying to save a life. So we'll break Shabbat, eat unkosher food, right? We'll, do, we'll break virtually all the laws of the Torah in order to save a life. And, of course, we will also transgress the normal prohibition of cutting someone. But how about in cosmetic surgery, we're not trying to save someone's life. We are trying only to relieve a symptom or a social a sense of stigma, or a person is embarrassed to go among people, or is having difficulty getting married, or they have difficulty becoming employed because of some feature of their, of their appearance. 
There we are, we are contemplating transgressing a Torah law, namely cutting the body. And the reason we want to do that is not life-saving, so we have a problem. <coughs> okay, it turns out that this is not a problem at all, because the, the Rambam, who, the Maimonides, when he rules on this issue of cutting the body, uses a particular language. The language he uses is Derech Nitzayon, or according to some versions, Derech Bizayon, two different editions. Rabbi Moshe Feinstein writes about this and he says what that word means is that what the Torah prohibits is injuring somebody in a way that is malicious and damaging. So that it's a blow that is struck with intent to harm. That's what the Torah prohibits. A blow that is struck or an injury that is perpetrated with no intent to harm at all is not even a beginning of a prohibition. Rabbi Moshe has a clear response on this and it's a classic and it's well known and therefore <coughs> there's not even a question of a rabbinic prohibition when the ten- intent of the injury is therapeutic. There's no prohibition to have it done to oneself and there's no prohibition on the part of the surgeon or any assistance when the intention is whether or not it's genuinely beneficial. That's another question, we have to discuss that. But since the intention of the cut or the injury is therapeutic, there's no problem with this potential Torah prohibition. So, the question of changing the natural <laughs> dissolves. The question of injuring the body <coughs> when the intention is, is, is uh, help and, and medical uh, procedure, there's no problem. The third issue, perhaps, is the issue of risk. And I'm going to come back to that because I'd like to spend a bit more time on that. But let me deal with two others briefly that are fascinating to note. Okay? You may not predict these two. One other issue that raises itself in cosmetic surgery, yeah, it might sound a little strange to you, but it is the problem of a man undergoing, not a woman, a man undergoing cosmetic procedure. The question is, is he transgressing the Torah prohibition of wearing a woman's garments? Right, let me try and explain this. You see, there's a prohibition in the Torah for a man to wear a woman's clothes and for a woman to wear a man's clothing. <coughs> a woman wearing man's clothing, not directly our subject, but the nature of that prohibition is, actually it's interesting, what exactly constitutes a man's garment? If you're talking about many phases of history <coughs> where the norm was for men and women to wear robes, what exactly is a man's garment? There's a very powerful and, and serious opinion in our early authorities, the Rishonim, who say that a man's garment is a weapon. That's a man's garment, a weapon. And therefore a woman, there's a Torah prohibition for a woman to wear a weapon. I'm not talking about using a weapon or carrying a weapon when necessary. I'm talking about wearing one as part of a, an attire, a uniform, for example, military. Women in the Israeli army <coughs> would be, there's an issue here. There's an issue. I'm not talking about using weapons. I'm talking about wearing one as part of a formal attire. Wearing a weapon, right? For many generations of the world's history, formal dress included a weapon, a sword or a, <coughs> a dagger. Or that is, that's an issue. However, today, it's, uh, it's a much, much broader than that, of course. It also involves wearing man's garments in general. One of the most ex- interesting examples of this, although we can't go into it fully now, is a woman wearing trousers. Right? When a woman wears slacks or trousers... The question is, is that considered to be transgressing the prohibition of wearing a man's garment? Right? And the issue here is fascinating. You see, the question becomes, are trousers a man's garment de facto, or are man's trousers a man's garment? Most normal women would not be seen wearing dead, not be seen dead. <laughs> they wouldn't like to be seen wearing dead men's trousers either. But what is that? <laughs> The point is that most normal women would not be seen, not like to be caught even dead, wearing man's trousers. The trousers she wears are not man's trousers. They are very elegantly cut feminine garments which are bought in a woman's boutique. They are not, right? And therefore, the the halachic question is, are trousers, in as much as they are trousers, a man's garment, or are men's trousers a man's garment and women's trousers are not? you You can well appreciate the difference. Um, there are Jewish authorities who hold 
that trousers that are cut for a woman are in fact a woman's garment. Of course, they're not there to be cut for a woman and they have to be cut modestly. We're not talking about the kind of garment that you need the fire department to get in and out of. That's not... Uh, that, that transgresses... There's no question that transgresses a whole host of other Jewish problems. <coughs> but um, if they are modestly cut and they are feminine, then they could well be considered to be a woman's garment. Um, in fact, there are even authorities who say that such trousers are better than a skirt or a dress because they hide the leg more. They're naturally more modest. If they're, if they're, not, if they're, not, if they're modestly cut then they're better than wearing a skirt or dress. In fact, the bottom line ruling, particularly in the Ashkenazi world, the custom we follow is that our women wear skirts or dresses which are long enough, and stockings. And that's because there's a serious halachic opinion that the lower part of the leg also should be covered. And in deference to that opinion, we wear a dress or a skirt and, and, um, and stockings. But uh, be that as it may, be that as it may, <coughs> those are some of the issues that go around a woman wearing man's garments. But a man wearing woman's garments is more what we need to discuss. The Torah prohibition of a man wearing a woman's garment <coughs> is not only wearing a garment. Okay? It's not only that you do not trans- transgress this prohibition only by wearing a, you know, a, a, a frock and strolling down the main drag, if you'll excuse the <coughs> <laughs> expression. But you transgress this if you're a man by doing anything that is a preening attention to beauty. Okay, it's, not, it's, it's often not, under, not correctly understood. It is not only wearing an item of apparel that is normally a woman's, it is any preening attention to beauty. So therefore, there's a prohibition for a Jewish man to pluck out grey hairs, or to pluck his eyebrows, or to shave under his arms, or shave his legs for that matter, or those kinds of things that women do in, the, in, the, in a society where women do those things as an attention to their, to their looks and their beauty, so doing that for a man is actually a Torah prohibition. Right? Torah prohibition. Dyeing his hair, um, makeup, for example, makeup, um, things like that. Earrings are an interesting question. Also goes into the issue of whether things like earrings are women's garments or are they bound by the custom of time and place? And since there may be a custom in a particular time and place for a man to wear an earring, then it could well be a man's garment. Okay, that's a, issue, a fascinating issue. But <clears throat> the question is that when a man is paying attention to his looks in a way that is normally feminine, there is here potential Torah, Torah transgression. There are fascinating questions here. Can a man shave his legs if he's a professional cyclist or a swimmer? Can he do that? And there are other similar questions. But <clears throat> this is an issue. In fact, strictly speaking, a Jewish man should not spend... Uh, uh, excessive time in front of the mirror because it's not necessary you're allowed to spend enough time in front of the mirror to look decent and clean but spending hours blow drying your pears and that sort of thing is not not, um, (laughs) not strictly speaking correct and therefore these these are issues now with that in mind, can you see the problem with cosmetic surgery? If a man is going to have surgery to improve his appearance, the question is, is he entering this zone <coughs> of attention to appearance that is normally feminine and therefore would be prohibited? That's a fascinating question. The general ruling here is that it's not an issue. And the real reason is because where we permit cosmetic surgery, we permit it halakhically where there's a genuine reason and the reason is suffering. Yeah, the, real, the, genu- the general reason for permitting cosmetic surgery is where there's a, a genuine issue of suffering. For example, a person who is ashamed to go among people, there's a place in the Gemara, Tosis says that the shame of going among, uh, social shame, being, being ashamed, is a psychological, psychological suffering is the greatest kind of suffering, 
it says in that context. And therefore, where there's a genuine suffering because a person cannot relate to other people because of some blemish or disfigurement or because he's having trouble uh, in, in marital uh, possibilities or employment, those are genuine issues of suffering. <coughs> therefore, the surgery is allowed. If the surgery were frivolously intended, the person only has a frivolous desire to look different, then for many reasons we wouldn't allow the cosmetic surgery. And it could well be that if it's a man, this issue may as well be um, an issue. This also crops up in cosmetic dentistry. Any dentists here? Also crops up in cosmetic dentistry where work is being done only for looks. It's an issue. Generally speaking, it's in, in practical terms, it's, it's, not a, it's not an issue because uh, teeth are functional as well as looks, and there's many other issues. But that is a, an issue. And finally, there's one other uh, question that needs to be dealt with, and that is the question and the problem of tattooing. The reason for the tattoos, tattoos, the reason for this is that <coughs> in modern cosmetic surgery, tattooing is used. The reason tattoos are used is as follows. You know that the... Um, the uh, <coughs> Certain parts of the body, when, when needing to be reconstructed, sometimes need pigmentation. A classic example is breast reconstruction. In breast reconstruction, both female and male breast reconstruction, when that plastic procedure is undertaken, one of the challenges is getting the breast to look normal. <clears throat> the old-fashioned way of doing it was, in order to pr- reproduce the normal areola and nipple, the old-fashioned way of doing it was to take a skin graft from a darker part of the body and graft it onto the reconstructed breast and work with it surgically to get it to look normal. Now, obviously, that's not a simple procedure. It leaves a scar in the donor site. It's very hard to, look, to get to look natural. It's far from a, an ideal option. And not that long ago, the idea came up of simply tattooing pigment into the skin to look natural. This is a fantastic solution, and it's used routinely now. When parts of the body are reconstructed, needing pigmentation, we simply tattoo pigment into the skin. <coughs> the problem is that there's a Torah prohibition of being tattooed. It's known as Xovas Karaka. It's a direct Torah prohibition, and a Jew is not allowed to have a tattoo not a permanent tattoo put into the skin. Now the question is this, is tattooing, what exactly is tattooing? Is it only, is it any insertion of pigment indelibly into the skin? Or is it only, there are opinions for example that the Torah prohibition of tattooing is transgressed only when what is inscribed in the skin is in the form of writing. When something is written in the skin, not just color. You see the question, what's a tattoo? <coughs> is a tattoo any, uh, any pigment in the skin? Or is it only a picture of a, an elderly, um, in grandmotherly type on a motorcycle with a dagger through a heart and the word mum? You, know, is <coughs> you know, is that what's meant by a tattoo? That's the, that is the question. Okay. This is debatable halakhically. And uh, not that long ago, actually, I was approached by a particular plastic surgeon who was about to perform this very procedure on a Jewish woman who needed breast reconstruction. And we researched the question, and we actually get, took the question to Rabbi Yashiv, and he said that it would be preferable for that part of the surgery to be undertaken by a non-Jewish assistant. <coughs> that was his ruling in that particular case. And that's, in fact, what was done. But the, uh, <coughs> this is a question. So that is another potential issue that could be raised. By the way, it's not only a question in plastic surgery. Can you have permanent makeup tattooed into the skin? You know, I don't know if you know, you know about this, but one of the options today is having makeup tattooed into the skin. Instead of having to apply eyeliner and so forth, all you do is you have it permanently tattooed. It's a wonderful thing because it allows you to cry without your face dripping all over, the, all over your, you know, the person who made you cry. And therefore... It's a very nice option, and it's, it's done today. Does Judaism countenance, does Judaism allow, <coughs> even for women, let alone for men, okay, where makeup's a problem in the first place, as I mentioned, does it allow permanent makeup to be tattooed? It's an issue. So, 
that is an issue, uh, another issue. Let's focus now on the question of risks and see if we can analyze that and, and understand that field. If you've been following me, you'll notice that we've covered four areas that are all surmountable. Yes, correct? They are all, in one or other way, not halachic problems. That means, when the surgery is correctly indicated and it's needed, because this person has some feature that, that is the disturbing or causing them distress, then the four areas that I've mentioned, in various ways, can be dealt with. Now let's deal with the final one, which is the question of exposing oneself to the risk of an operation. <coughs> you see, first of all, what, is exa- what exactly is the risk? Let's just get some idea of the, of the quantification of the risk here. It's very hard to, to give a general figure. You know, cosmetic surgery varies so widely. There are major procedures that are done in, in removing large amounts of fat, for example. There's a mortality rate to those operations. And there are extremely fine surgical procedures where you know, the chance of coming to harm is almost zero. Right? However, in all of these procedures, there is some problem. Even local anesthesia, which is used as a purely, simply a local anesthetic, which is used for very fine surgical procedures, there's no medical procedure virtually that is without risk. And even the local anesthetic, some people, some people actually can die from a small amount of local anesthetic that is injected. Often the local anesthetic has a very small amount of adrenaline in, and even that can cause problems, and it's not, wi- not without, without risk. So, it's hard to give a figure. But perhaps the best way to approach this is, let's assume we're talking about a cosmetic procedure that requires general anesthesia. What is the risk of a general anesthetic? What's the risk of dying from general anesthetic? This question has been, has been uh, <coughs> well documented, well looked at in medical, the medical literature, and it turns out that the risk of dying from a general anesthetic, which is cool, elective, planned, with no known risk factors, where there's no other reason that the person should come to harm, the various studies that have been done put the risk at, at, between 1 in 20,000 and 1 in 40 or 50,000. Which means that 1 in 30 or 40 or 50,000 people will die from an elective general anesthetic, something that's given for a caesarean section or for, for, for a cosmetic procedure, where there's no other reason that they should be at risk, there's that risk of death. Well, how does Judaism look at a risk of 1 in 40,000? How, how do we look at how we approach such a risk? Is it negligible? We don't have to worry about it. Is it significant? <clears throat> how do we judge such a risk? I think the way to approach this is as follows. You can quantify risk, you can stratify risk into three categories. And I'm not talking medically, I'm talking generally. From a Jewish perspective, you can quantify, you can stratify, you can build a hierarchy of risk into three categories. There is uh, low-risk issues, which Judaism regards as doable, not a problem halakhili. There's an intermediate risk category, which has got its own issues and definitions. And then there's a high-risk category, which, generally speaking, you may not enter. Virtually under all circumstances. Let's see if we can deal with these three categories and make them them plain. What's called a low-risk? What's the low-risk category? Interestingly, it's not defined by statistics. In the medical world, scientific world, we approach this stratification on the basis of statistics. What we call low risk medically is something that has a percentage chance (coughs) of harm below a certain percentage. In genetics, for example, in genetic counseling, counseling, what's generally regarded as a low risk of a genetic abnormality is less than than 10%. Okay, that's the generally accepted figure in genetic counseling, less than 1 in 10 the, the, the approach we use is, what are the statistics? In Jewish thinking, actually, it's not based on a statistic. It's based on an entirely different issue. What we call low risk in Jewish terms is something that is broadly accepted in society. You know, stay carefully with me, because it's not a familiar concept. 
and it's a, a very weighty halachic issue. Something that is accepted by the consensus that is broadly practiced in, in society, not necessarily Jewish society. Something that people do without an assessment of the risks and benefits, you are allowed to do as a Jew without assessment of the risk and benefit. Okay? Examples. Yeah, I take an example. Let's say driving in a motor, you know, driving in a car, uh, driving in a motor, motor vehicle. I'm not talking about in places where it's high risk, like in Israel. I'm talking about <laughs> places where, you know, where it's where people do that without consideration of the risks. Nobody gets into their car and thinks about the risk of having an accident when they're going down to the shop to buy something or visit a friend. They don't do that, right? Although there is a risk attached, there's a far higher risk of being injured or killed in a car, for example, than there is in scheduled, scheduled airline travel per passenger mile, per departure, per journey, whatever you, t- you care to use as your measure. There's a definite risk. But society accepts that risk without a view to the, to the dangers. And therefore, Jewishly, because it's broadly accepted in society, you don't have to worry about the percentage risk. Right? Driving your car is certainly more risky than sitting home in your living room, unless you've got a particularly problematic marriage. But let's say, uh, under normal circumstances, driving your car is... Jewishly, you don't have to worry about that, because since it's broadly accepted in society, you may do that without you think. Scheduled airline travel is the same thing. Since it is as, as safe as it is, and society accepts it as a thing that we don't have to worry about the risks, a Jew is not obliged to make an assessment of whether the benefit outweighs the risk. You don't have to do that. That is called dash bo rabbi. The halachic terminology is dash bo rabbi. That means people throng through this area, and in such a case, shem epsoim hashem. God protects those who are innocently or naively or simply doing that which is normal. You don't have to worry about that. And there are many medical and broadly and <coughs> uh, broad applications beyond medicine. Simple examples would be um, you know that many food colorings and additives that we use today have never been proved to be safe. You know that there are many additives that are used today, a long list of things that are put into our food for the purposes of preserving or enhancing or coloring. Many of those have never been documented thoroughly as being safe. From a Jewish perspective, you do not have to worry about that. If evidence turns up that something is harmful, you'd be forbidden to... But uh, until such time, since it's broadly accepted in society as being the norm, you don't, have to, <coughs> you don't have to do about that. If you are particularly knowledgeable yourself in a particular area, you have to take more care. But if you're not, and you're doing that which is broadly accepted, it's a very well-known medical standard. I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example that happened to me personally in medical practice. <coughs> I was involved in a practice once where there happened to be, it happened to be in Israel. We had a family in the, in, the, in the community who did not want their children to be immunized. Okay, I was involved there with another doctor, and it turned out that this family believed in naturopathic, holistic medicine. I'm not now going into the issue of how that is viewed halakhically, but the point is that they did not want their children vaccinated. And it came time for the children to have the so-called three-in-one vaccine, right? In uh, (coughs) whooping cough and uh, diphtheria and tetanus, and the whooping cough vaccine, so the pertussis vaccine, the problem there was that at the time it was thought that that, some people still feel that this may be the case, this vaccine does or may have a risk in itself. So the family said to us like this, look, we think these vaccines are harmful, we don't want our children to be immunized. So eventually the argument, and we felt the children should be immunized, like the whole community was being immunized, we felt it was a responsible thing to do. The argument became most heated about this particular vaccine, and the reason was, because they said, look, not only do we believe that immunizations are harmful, this one has a known risk. And in fact, the figures that were published were more or less, I'm not going to argue about the details, that the whooping cough vaccine 
has a serious risk of neurological damage or even death in certain, yeah, in certain cases that can amount to 1 in 20,000. So the family said, look, you want to give our children a risk of 1 in 20,000, right? why do you want to do that? So we said, obviously, the, the, the medical logic is clear. The logic is like this. The risk of coming to harm from the vaccine is 1 in 20,000. The risk of harm from the disease is far greater. Whooping cough in young children about under age one or one and a half has a mortality of three or four percent. Three or four percent of children die, right, if they get whooping cough below that age. So we do the arithmetic and we can demonstrate that the risk of getting whooping cough and dying is far greater than the risk of the vaccine. There's no medical question about that. You take the route of less risk. Now, during the discussion, a very interesting fact emerged. Discussing this with a family, and it turned out during the discussion, I realized that I was saying something completely false. Apply your mathematical mind and you will realize that the error. The error is like this. If we give your child the vaccine, we with our own hands are giving your child a risk of 1 in 20,000. If we don't give your child the vaccine, you know what the risk is of getting whooping cough and dying? Zero. You know why? Because as long as all the other children are vaccinated, there's no risk of your child getting the disease. Now that is a very interesting moral dilemma. What do you say to a family where they say, you see on the one hand you could say, but look, everybody has to do their share, otherwise... You see, what happens in societies where people get careless and enough people stop immunizing, then you get a, enough vulnerable people in the population for an epidemic to spread and then people come to harm. In fact, about um, 10 years ago in Israel, there was an outbreak of polio for that reason. And 20 years before, there was a m- m- much more serious outbreak. What happened was people got careless about the vaccine and then enough children were unimmunized and then there was an epidemic and people are paralyzed today because of that. So, <clears throat> so surely everybody has the responsibility to do that. On the other hand, do we... Uh, we took the question to Rabbi Yashiv, one of the great Talachic authorities today, and Rabbi Yashiv told us that in those circumstances it's permitted to force the family to vaccinate the child. He didn't mean force them physically, he meant to give a ruling <coughs> which they were prepared to accept that they need to vaccinate the children. I personally said to Rabbi Yashiv on that occasion, I said, surely the Rav's saying that because they have to do their share and act responsibly like everyone else. He said, no, that's not the reason. The reason is immunizing children in this generation is considered normal. And the Jews are obliged to do that, which is broadly normal in society. And everybody agrees that vaccinating children today, whether you agree or don't agree, that it should be done, is certainly the norm. Even in the third world today, the vast majority of kids are <coughs> involved in the vaccination program. And if you did not do it, he said, you'd be negligent. Of course, a fascinating philosophical question arises here. What if you do that which is normal and the child comes to harm? What if you do that? What if we would have said to that family, right, you have to immunize the child, they subscribe to his view, immunize the child, and their child turns out to be one in 20,000 that gets serious brain complications. What would be the Jewish approach? <clears throat> Very interesting question. And the answer is, we have an approach that needs, needs analysis, needs more thoughts, and I can't go into it fully now, but our concept is that if you ever do something illegitimate, you do not escape trouble that was meant to come your way. Put more bluntly, it had to happen. Let me try to give you an illustration of this. Some couple of years ago, there was an Israeli nurse <coughs> assisting at an operation. The operation, to the best of my knowledge, was the excision of an ectopic pregnancy. A woman had become pregnant. The pregnancy was ex- abnormally placed in one of the fallopian tubes. And, of course, that can be a great danger. She began to bleed. The surgeons, the two gynecologists, were extract- uh, cutting out the fallopian tube. They were secular doctors, chilonim, and the nurse was a religious girl. During the operation, while the woman was anesthetized, the one doctor said to the other, this foolish religious lady, we told her to be sterilized, we advised her to become sterilized, she insisted on this mitzvah of having children, she went against our advice, she insisted on becoming pregnant, and look what's happening to her now, she's in danger, and she's losing one of her 
fallopian tubes. Right? This is the thing. She should definitely listen to us and not go ahead with her religious values. The nurse was very distressed. She didn't know what to answer these doctors. After all, she knew they were wrong. But on the other hand, they were right practically. I mean, she was coming to harm and had she been sterilized, although it's a prohibition in most circumstances, she wouldn't have come to this home. So the nurse wrote a letter to Rav Zilberstein, one of the <coughs> accepted halachic authorities today, Rav Yashi's son-in-law, and she asked him what he should have said, what she should have said. And he said, the correct approach to that is, a Jew believes that if you ever do something illegitimate, you do not save yourself from trouble that was meant to come your way. If you need a certain amount of sorrow in your life and it's coming for the right reason, you'll not get out of that through illegitimate means. And he gave a very interesting illustration, and you're not welcome to ask questions on this illustration because it's Kabbalistic, but I'll just tell you anyway. You can research it yourself. <coughs> the Madras says that there was once a man who came to King Solomon, Shlomo Melech, and begged him to teach him the language of the birds. There's a Kabbalistic idea that the birds, if you know how to listen to what they're saying, you can hear them talking. Not, this is not a subject we can go into now. But he begged him to teach him the language of the birds. Shlomo Melech said to him, look, it's not entirely correct, you shouldn't do it, there's reasons not to... He tried to dissuade the man, but he was so insistent that eventually Shlomo taught him the language of the birds. The man was absolutely thrilled, and he walked out, and as soon as he walked out, he heard the birds saying that his chickens were going to die. So he quickly sold off all his chickens, and in fact, they subsequently died. So he was very happy. Then he heard the birds saying that his house was going to burn down. So he quickly sold his house, and of course, subsequently it burned down. He was very happy. Then he heard the birds saying that he was going to die. So he ran back to King Solomon and he said, what do I do now? And Shlomo Melech said to him, he said, you know, there was a decree in heaven against you, there was a decree in heaven against you, and Hashem tried to take it out on your chickens. And you got out of that. Then Hashem tried to take it out on your house. You got out of that. And now there's nothing I can do for you. So that is our, that's our approach to that subject. Anyway, the point is that, the point is that um, you do what's normal, that's what you're obliged to do, and you do not have to second guess or analyze the risks if it's a very low risk and generally accepted in society. That's called Dashborabim Shemapsaim Hashem. And therefore, if something is trivially a trivial amount of risk because it's accepted that way in society, broadly done, we're not talking about people um, on Sunday afternoons jumping off cliffs with rubber ropes attached to their ankles because that in their segment of society that's called normal. That's not that's not Jewishly normal. But uh, if it's something that's broadly done across society, then you can do it as a Jew. That's called low risk. Okay? So far, so good? What's high risk? What we want to assess is the middle risk category. But the best way to do it is to define the low risk which we've done. Let's exclude the high risk category. And what we'll be left with will be our problem. Okay? Our issue. High risk is that which is very risky. Very risky. In very risky situations, there's a debate between the Jerusalem and the Babylonian Talmud. May you put yourself into a high-risk situation to save a life. Of course, for no reason not to save a life is definitely forbidden. A Jew is not allowed to enter a situation of high risk. <coughs> the only exception, the obvious exception, is a military situation. If the, the law, the halachas, the laws, the Jewish law governing the army, I think last week I gave you, we discussed one or two examples, no? One, in the military situation, there are different set of laws that apply, and the reason is because that's ab initio situation of risk. A soldier can't say, I'm sorry, I'm not going in there because it's risky. Right? If you're obliged to be there in the first place, you, you're obliged de facto to accept a certain lethal risk, right? provided that the war is a Torah-mandated situation. <coughs> that is uh, an exception. But apart from that, to enter a high-risk situation, a Jew, you're not allowed to do that. To save a life, you can. 
But there's a debate between the Jerusalem and Babylonian Talmuds, which is this. How much risk do you have to expose yourself to to save someone else's life? Someone is certainly going to die. Certainly will die. But you can save their life by exposing yourself to a serious risk of dying yourself. In the high risk. The Jerusalem Talmud rules that you must do that. You mu- you're obliged to put yourself into serious risk to save a life. The Babylonian Talmud rules that you are forbidden to put yourself into a high-risk situation to save a life. And fortunately for most of us chickens, um, in all arguments between the Babylonian and Jerusalem Talmuds, we rule like the Babli. Which means that our ruling is you may not, you may not expose yourself to serious risk to save a life. Not moderate risk, but high risk. That you may not do. To save your own life, you may. To save your own life, you may. Okay, even very high risk. Uh, without going into too much detail, I'll just give you the classical application of that. That is where a person themselves, one, oneself, person has a lethal illness. Okay, so assume you have some problem, some disease that will cost, person will, it will cost him his life, this person within a few months. Uh, but in terms of the definition, Jewish definition here, what we call terminal is less than a year. What we call Chaya Shah, terminal life, the, 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 the sources, Talmud and the, the Halachic sources subsequently rule that terminal life, life that will definitely end within a year, we call, <coughs> we call Chaya Shah, temporary life, that's what we call, in, in, in English we call that terminal. A person has a terminal disease who can be offered a procedure that if it succeeds will save them, but if it fails will take away the temporary life. Here's a person with some sort of uh, malignant illness, right? They will die, according to the figures, in three or six or nine months. We, we can offer them an operation which, if it's successful, will give them a normal life. But if it fails, they'll die tomorrow morning during the operation. And deny them the three or six or nine months they would have had. Here the ruling is, without going into derivation again, <coughs> our ruling is that it's up to the person to choose. You're fully entitled, as a Jew, fully halakhically entitled to make that choice. Would you rather have a certain three or six or nine months and prepare yourself and then, and then leave the world? Or would you rather risk giving all that away for the chance of having a normal life? The default position in the Talmud is clearly to take the risk for the long-term life. The reason is the Talmud says, We're not concerned about temporary life in those circumstances, but it cannot be forced on an individual. The default position, I've been, uh, had to ask this question myself in, in various contexts, is that if a person cannot make a choice, for example, they're unconscious or it's a child, the normal assumption, the Jewish default position is, we would put them, we would give them that procedure, all else being equal, because the chance of living normally is more valuable than the, than the certainty of a very temporary life that is ebbing away. This ruling applies even when the mortality is more than 50%. That means when the risk of the surgery, for example, has more than a fifth, that means the chances are they will not survive. They are still fully entitled to take that option and take the small chance of living normally, even though the majority chance is giving away the temporary life. Okay? That is, that is entering a situation of high risk to save your life. But to, to put your life at high risk to save somebody else, okay, the general default position is that you're not allowed to do that. What is called high risk? How much risk is high risk? In the sources that define this, there's one source in all the halachic literature I'm aware of which says that high risk is more than 1 in 6. 16, 17%, somewhere around there, that's called high risk. Rabbi Yashi was asked this question recently and he said that's far too high. Far too high. That means, do you understand what I'm saying? That it means much less than 1 in 6 is called high risk. Certainly 1 in 6. But much less than that, okay, is considered a high-risk situation. And you'd not be allowed to put yourself into that. The Chavetz Chaim gives a very good rule of thumb. Very crude, but a very good general rule. The Chavetz Chaim says, would you put yourself at that risk 
to save all your possessions. You understand? Let's say you're standing uh, and there's, um, there's a stormy sea and all your possessions are going down. If you jump in, you can save them. But you're not such a good swimmer and it's dangerous. If you would genuinely put yourself into that risk to save all your possessions, you're absolutely obliged to do that to save someone else's life. But if you would genuinely not save all your possessions because you're too afraid of the risk, genuinely, not being too religious about this, right, and on the, at the expense of someone's life. If you genuinely would not take that risk to save everything that you own in the world, then you're entitled not to save that individual's life when it costs you that level of risk. Okay? And unfortunately, this question has come up many times. The most recent version of it I saw was asked by an Israeli doctor who had to get to injured people who had been injured in a terrorist attack, and he himself was exposed to risk driving down that road to get to those patients. So the question he had to ask was, how much risk am I obliged to expose myself to as a professional? Where's my duty, in a sense, to get to those people? This is one of those situations. Is that called military? Is it not called military? This is an interesting question. So that is the category of high risk. We're left with the category of moderate risk. How is it defined? It's none of these high-risk situations where you should not put yourself into it, but it is not trivial. In other words, people in society do not do that for no other reason. And I think it's correct to say that a general anesthesia fits into this category. Would you agree? General anesthesia is not something that people do on Sunday afternoons because they've got nothing else to do. They may take a drive in their car, or they may take a plane trip somewhere to go and see, you know, have a vacation, but they don't undertake general anesthesia for no reason regardless of the percentages and the 1 in 20 or 30 or 40,000 risk. And any sensible doctor will not send a patient for general anesthetic when he can get away without a general anesthetic. And therefore, that would be a classic example that fits into the, into the middle risk. There are some authorities who argue that general anesthesia these days is so safe that perhaps it's not even in that category. But I think the normal approach is a general anesthetic probably fits into this category. Now, what is the halachic uh, quality, what is the halachic rationale for entering middle, middle risk situation? And here comes the rule. To put yourself into a moderate risk situation, you may, but you need a good reason. Okay? Trivial risk, that everyone does, you don't need a good reason. High risk, you're forbidden. Moderate risk, you need a good reason. The classic good reason is earning a living. The Talmud gives the example of people picking fruit on the branches of very high trees. Right, where they do it to earn a living. And the ruling there is, you may climb in such trees if you earn a living doing, it that, doing that, but you may not do it if, there's no, if you're not earning a living. You can't expose yourself to that risk. There's a classic response in the Nodebi Yehuda, one of the great halakhic authorities of the 18th century. He was asked by a Jewish big game hunter about the risks. <laughs> a Jew who happened to be a big game trapper and hunter, used to go out into the, into the bush and the wilds, wrote him about the risks of being out there. First of all, these days, there's no question, the, the bush and the wilds are a great deal safer than the city. Okay, these days. <laughs> Today, you need a halakhic response and allow you to live in the city. But be that as it may, in his day, the question was going out into the wilds. And the Noi answers him in a very interesting way. First of all, he says, it's not a profession for a Jewish boy. That's the first thing he says. He says, Esav was a hunter, not Jews. But as far as the question of risk is concerned, if you earn a living doing this, it will be halakhically permissible. Okay? And that is the, that's the general category. So if there's a good reason, earning a living, and more broadly, things that you genuinely need. <coughs> One of the interesting <coughs> versions of this question that was asked not so long ago was by a young Jew from Johannesburg, South Africa, who asked the question of whether it's halakhically permissible to live in a society that has a high crime rate. Can you as a Jew live in South Africa, live in Johannesburg, where the crime rate is higher than it used to be, shall we say? Okay, arguable about exactly what the figures are. And the lucky answer he was given was, 
you may live in a society that has a certain amount of danger if you have a good reason. Even if it's decidedly risky, if you have a good reason. And earning a living or having your normal social structures intact where your children are educated and you, you're not being made to feel like a refugee, those are all very good reasons. So unless it became a society in which the risk is downright lethal, you know, a, a, what we call the high-risk situation, there's no question you can take on such moderate risks. Okay? So there, that would be a general analysis of our of our three categories. Let me summarize and come back to the question of the cosmetic procedure and sum it up like this. In terms of the first four elements that we discussed this evening, cosmetic surgery for good reason would be, would be acceptable. In terms of the risk, the, if the risk is in the moderate risk category, okay, it's a small cosmetic procedure with general anesthetic for argument's sake, there you would need a good reason. And we have to assume that we'd, yeah, we're talking about a good reason because we wouldn't allow the cosmetic procedure on the other counts anyway if it weren't for the serious uh, reason. What is a good reason? Earning a living. A person has some sort of disfigurement or blemish. They feel awkward about it. A genuine issue, not a, not a, a, a misperception, but a genuine issue. There, they would be allowed to undergo the surgery because earning a living or getting married or simply not being ashamed to go among people in society is a weighty issue of tangible benefit, it's not a frivolous issue that is called a genuine and good reason and therefore under those circumstances this particular example of cosmetic surgery would be, would be allowed. That's a general approach to the issues involved in cosmetic surgery and a very brief overview of some of the issues involved in, in risks. If there are any questions on any of the issues that we covered that I'm able to answer, I'll be very happy to try to Yeah, we spoke about high risk and saving the life, but this is assuming that it saved the life for long term. But, but what if, without the procedure, it can die in six months, and with the procedure, against two years or three years? Right, interesting question. Let me repeat the question. The question is, the, the, the dilemma we set up was a person who is terminally ill, but could have a procedure that would save their life in the long run. What happens if it won't save their life in the long run, only give them a longer run? Now, the example you gave was not entirely the one we need, because you said it's three or six or nine months, or two or three years. Actually, a number of years is already halakhically in the category of a normal life, generally. And so we would, certainly would be free to choose that procedure. But strictly speaking, even if the patient would want the procedure to prolong their temporary life, even that would probably be allowed in most circumstances. You couldn't force that on somebody, okay? And it's not, yeah, but it would be an option. The reason is that this fits into a broader category, which is known as the category of withholding therapy in general. Did we speak about this last week? Very briefly, to withhold therapy, that means you have a surgery, an operation, chemotherapy, something like that, and you're contemplating withholding the therapy from the patient, right? They're going to die in three or six or nine months. The therapy might give them a normal lifespan or just prolong their temporary life, okay? The law with that is, like, is a very important thing to know because it's so badly misapplied, so badly misunderstood. The whole hospice movement, unfortunately, very often misapplies this from a Jewish point of view. That the medical view on this is sliding rapidly away from the Jewish position here, and it has to be known. In terms of withholding therapy, not treating somebody, okay, who's dying, in Jewish law, you may only do that under the following circumstances. Number one, it has to be a terminally ill patient. Two, they must be suffering uncontrollably, which should never happen medically. And third, they must want to stop. Let's get this clear. When you want to withhold therapy from someone and let them die, halakhically you need, one, terminally ill patient. Not somebody who's got early Alzheimer's disease that in 25 years they're going to kind of be, you know, less with it. 
which is yeah, not that's not an issue. Or they've got permanent vegetative state where they're going to live many years. I, I, I happen to know a young woman. As it happens, it's a young woman who had a nose operation and never recovered from the anesthetic. She had a minor nose repair, a nose cosmetic procedure, 30 years ago. Never woke up after anesthetic. She's still to this day unconscious in a long care facility, never having regained consciousness. That is not a that is not a that is not a terminal life. Okay, so it has to be a terminally ill patient. It has to be suffering suffering uncontrollably, which is not justified at all medically. You're allowed to give even dangerous medication for pain relief, even if it's dangerous, right? In fact, you're obliged to under certain circumstances and conditions. And thirdly, a person who, in view of that situation, wants to stop therapy. Under those circumstances, as Rabbi Moshe finds that you're obliged to stop the therapy. You're not allowed. You're obliged to stop. You're not allowed to push on when they don't want to push on. Okay? However, you need all of those. Actually, Rabbi Moshe said there's one other circumstance in which it applies. A person is terminally ill, not suffering, but unconscious with no hope of ever regaining a moment's consciousness and does not want to continue, or said that they would not want to under such circumstances, or the family can testify that they said, or they know that the person would not have wanted to continue. Under those circumstances, never another conscious moment in which to think of Torah or do Chiv or anything like that, or conscious and suffering, okay? You need all three of those in which circumstances you're obliged to withhold therapy, and even then, it only applies to medical therapy. It does not apply to any staple need. You may never withdraw food, nutrition, liquid, yeah, liquid and electrolytes, that means in, internal normal homeostasis like fluids. By the way, it's not done today. People get into the situation, they pull out the feeding tube now, let alone switch off the ventilator. Many people today, they get into that terminal phase, they just let them starve to death, they pull out the feeding tube, or they take out the intravenous nutrition and uh, uh, flu- fluid and let them die of dehydration. Right? It's a common practice today. It's countenanced by law in many places. That's not allowed. So it has to be given a staple needs like adequate nutrition, liquids, oxygenation. Not allowed to let somebody asphyxiate to death because like they're terminally ill anyway. And any other staple need. If they're insulin dependent diabetic, they have to get the insulin. <coughs> if they get thyroid hormone, they need that. <coughs> they need blood products according to most authorities and it's debatable whether they need antibiotics as well. Many Jewish authorities rule that antibiotics are more in the category of a normal need than an abnormal medical or surgical thing and therefore... Even antibiotics, probably, certainly a large body of opinion holds, they should be given uh, antibiotics. And so, in order to terminate therapy and let this person die, okay, you need all of those things. Again, terminally ill, suffering uncontrollably, wants to stop, and you're still providing basic needs. Under those circumstances, you stop chemotherapy, surgery, etc. So, in your example, if this person wants to push on, they want to, they want to live another six months, they've got a, a grandchild's bar mitzvah, whatever it is, uh, certainly push on. Yes, please. Living organ donation. Are you allowed to take the risk of donating a kidney? Or a right. Excellent question. Excellent question. <coughs> I think we should really discuss this as a separate subject. Very briefly, the question was, can you take the risk of being an organ donor? We discussed this last week to some extent. If you give a kidney, for example, you give an organ, there's the problem, many problems, but one of them is the risk. Apart from living without a kidney, which is an issue in itself and a risk. But the issue is giving a kidney involves a risk. Something's not clear? No, it's clear? Yeah, okay. Giving a um, kidney is a risk. Okay? There's the risk of the surgery, the anesthetic, post-surgical infection, needing that kidney 25 years down the line when your other one gets injured. It's very hard to quantify the risk. But all agree that when you put all the risks together in normal circumstances, it is moderate risk. It's not high risk, that's for sure. 
Okay, the figures of survival in kidney donors, even liver donors, giving half a liver, okay, are excellent. They're not perfect. A Jewish man in New York this year gave half a liver to his brother, who happened to be a doctor. Both of them in their 50s, and died three days later. Okay, gave half a liver, half of his liver, to his brother. It caused a major upheaval. I was at Mount Sinai Hospital where this happened in New York about uh, two weeks ago, and I had to present some of this material to the doctors present, and they were still in shock because this had happened in their institution. So it's certainly not without risk, okay? However, the risk of giving a kidney today is so safe that it is certainly not in a high-risk category. But it's not trivial. People don't do that on Sunday afternoons because they, you know, they're taking a break from jumping off cliffs with the rubber ropes. And therefore, that is moderate. Moderate risk, you may, but you're not obliged. And therefore, the rule on kidney donation is you certainly may. It's an incredible mitzvah to do it, but you're not obliged. And that raises a whole slew of halakhic issues. How do you approach a person and ask them to give their kidney when they may not want to? We discussed this, no? Pressurize them psychologically into giving their kidney when they would rather not, but they, can't, they feel they can't say no in the face of the family and somebody's dying. That raises a fascinating issue, and we discussed some of that last week. Perhaps we'll discuss transplantation as a separate issue because it raises these fascinating questions. If, yeah. the child, if, if the patient has died, you know, and there are two kidneys, and mm. one can be given, yeah. can the parents legitimately say... So the question is, can you take a kidney from a dying person Indeed. to save other people's lives, whether the person's a child or an adult? Mm. This again goes into the whole issue of, the, of transplantation. I'll just say this. If the person is dying, you certainly cannot take the kidney. If they're dead, you certainly can. Is there a brain dead definition? Well, that's the problem. That's the problem. So now the critical, critical question becomes, what is considered the point of death? I'd like to go into this fully on a separate occasion, if you don't mind. We'll talk about transplantation, particularly heart transplantation, which requires knowledge of the definition of death. So let's leave it for a separate subject, please. Talk about vaccination. There is a big debate in this country about MMR. Right. right? And people don't feel safe taking it, even though it's a custom of the country. Right. Right. The current debate that's going on about measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, <clears throat> there's no question that the Jewish default position is to do what's normal, and the general medical consensus today is that it is normal. Okay? If evidence comes up, hard evidence, not hysterical you know, public opinion, you know, which goes through phases, but genuine evidence comes up that there's a risk, the whole, thing, the whole attitude will be different. But until such time when it's only hearsay and it's not corroborated, and the norm is still the vaccine, there's no problem giving the vaccine. Yes, please. Tattoo makeup for a woman. For a woman. I'm not, you need to ask me privately about that. Okay. Meantime, use the mascara and don't cry. Okay. Um, yeah. One last question. Last question. Yes, please. Right, this is a fascinating question. What is the acceptability of Siamese twins being separated? There are two Iranian girls, I think, right now, in fact, next few days, no? 29-year-old girls joined by the sides of their head. Sides of their heads who are being separated. Probably an operation that will probably take four days. Okay? This is uh, a procedure plan. I would like to discuss Siamese twins, the separation of Siamese twins, on a separate occasion, if you don't mind. A fascinating case occurred in the Jewish world of two little girls, very similar to the cases that occurred here not so long ago, where two bodies were joined, there was only one heart. And if nothing were done, both would die. The question was, could you separate off one with the heart, sacrificing the other to save her life? So, perhaps next week, 
with your permission, we'll go into that fascinating question. Of course, it's not a common medical situation, but the principles that come out of it are very broadly applied, and perhaps next week we'll go into that. Thank you. Oh, okay.